Welcome to Souls of Hip Hop, a podcast for hip hop heads that aims to bring inspiring people together to share their wisdom, passion, and unique stories. My name is Candy, and I'm DJ Razorcut, and together we are Solidarity, connecting souls organically. On today's episode, we have Stephen Flegg. He is a world-renowned DJ, b-boy, producer, and multi-instrumentalist from Baltimore, Maryland. Beyond his professional accomplishments, Flegg was present when the two of us met, got engaged, and also officiated our wedding celebration in Boston. Welcome, Flegg. All righty. How did you get introduced to hip-hop? What were like your first encounters? Yeah, so I guess the first encounters with hip-hop would be when I was very young, and my brothers were the ones that introduced me to it. Uh, my oldest brother, probably the most of anyone, and he used to get tapes and have different like hip-hop tapes that he would buy and he would bring home. And that was where I first heard it, probably him playing it in his room. Definitely when we were in the car, we would hear a lot of hip-hop radio, like pretty much only hip-hop radio, to the chagrin of my mom, dad, and grandmother because they were usually the people that were driving us or around in the car. And my dad is a jazz musician and he would kind of like make fun of it in certain ways and whatever. And my mom probably tolerated the most, but obviously if there was stuff that was off color or stuff that, you know, she didn't like, you know, that stuff was kind of like, okay, let's switch it. And she wouldn't want us listening to it too much. And then my grandmother, the same way for that. But generally speaking, yeah, you know, it was from my brother and I just remember it was in the car a lot. And so that gave us sort of the exposure to what was going on in hip hop, like at the time, like what the hits were, what, whatever. We had some dope DJs and sometimes we would like it. I would always like it, but my brothers too, when a certain DJ would get on, like Frank Ski would be mixing records. And obviously it would have that element of a lot of songs you didn't know. It was the early to mid nineties. So it was like a lot of dope tracks like super cool stuff and then also interesting ways of mixing it like doing instrumentals and acapellas and all that kind of stuff and i guess along with jazz which i was also introduced to at a very young age hip-hop was probably the second thing that i was introduced to at a very young age as well and yeah shout out to my brother for that my brother anthony after being a fan of hip-hop and being into it you know from exposure and sort of just starting to follow it from that when did I start getting into the culture? And I guess the culture part of it I would consider would be when I got into breaking and seeing breaking on like some skate videos. So it's completely sort of separate, but it is kind of interesting. There's a lot of people that make the link between skating and having been skaters and then getting into actually different forms of hip hop, but definitely breaking is one of them. And yeah, on a skate video, I think it's sort of this mutual respect of like, there's like an element of, you know, trickery and sort of, not trickery in like a, in a devious way, but like you're doing tricks, you're you're doing something that's like very cool looking visually, and then it's something that's maybe hard to do that you know takes a lot of practice, but it's outside the realm of traditional school sports or martial arts or whatever it might be or dance. All of both of those things were sort of in this other gray area, and yeah, I think there was a mutual respect there. So occasionally, yeah, there would be breakers featured or just like a little section of them in some of the skate videos. So I saw it in there, started trying to break, and then after breaking some, wanted to like connect to the actual community. And again, one of my brothers knew a breaker and kind of helped me with that. But that was, I guess, the first time that from 
you know, the first portion of liking hip hop and liking the music and then seeing the dance, but actually getting involved into a part where you're sort of in the community or around them was late middle school, early high school, I'd say when I finally, you know, got to go to some of my first breaking practices. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is, this is amazing. That was in Baltimore? That was in near D.C. Okay. So I grew up in between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. And so it just some of my history for all this stuff goes to Baltimore or some is to D.C. And so, like, I would dig for records in both places. But I first started doing that more in Baltimore. And then I ended up being in D.C. later. And then I went to a lot of my first practices further towards D.C. because University of Maryland is the university where they had a lot of the big practices because University of Maryland was like kind of on the north end, north side of D.C. So people from Northern Virginia could come up to it. People from D.C. could come up to it. People from Baltimore could come down to it. And for a while, that was this really, really strong, really central place where like, you know, I swear some of the practices that happened on Thursday nights Mm -hmm. felt like jams. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it was really exciting to go to those practices because there was so little information around, you know, the internet and all of that, that everyone was so excited just to be there and to be around other people that were doing it because the sort of, it wasn't like you saw it every day on Instagram. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like you could reach out to people easily anyway and just be like, hey, you know, type to them like, oh, I heard you're a b-boy. Let's break somewhere. It was like, no, you just word of mouth. And then everyone found out like, okay, this spot called Prinkert Hall in University of Maryland was the spot that everyone would meet up to go to. But yeah, and so like that was the first thing that I went to that was sort of a community experience and it was definitely like, wow, this is crazy. Yeah, it was a super cool exposure. I think that's really something that's interesting about the USA around that time, like what, uh, late 90s, early 2000s? Late 90s, early 2000s, yeah. Because the same thing in Miami and there was... FIU, where people would go to the union, and FIU, which in union was where, you know, they had a floor and where all the students would meet up. But everyone knew, even if you weren't going to FIU, that you can go to practice there and meet people and not knowing, not having any other way of, but word of mouth. Yeah. Yeah. I think even in Europe, like, unfortunately, we didn't have the college um, system that was helping. Mm-hmm. But the word of mouth was the same thing. I think at the time it was like you needed to know someone that knew someone. I was like, oh, there's a practice spot there. And then you go meet more people. And then they're like, oh, we actually practice. Usually we practice over here. And you kind of figure out through word of mouth who was practicing where. And that was cool that you could just basically show up at anyone's practice and get down and vibe. There wasn't as much hostility as I feel like hmm. I experience sometimes in the U.S. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I guess the U.S. You, yeah. you were like, mm, I don't know, Florida was guy? very territorial. I don't yeah. know. And even in, in I mean, I, I was interning in D.C. in 2001 to 2003. I was in Springfield in Alexandria, Virginia. And so I remember it was really kind of territorial. Yeah, it was definitely way more serious than even, like, my crewmates, like, you know, now we're all kind of cool with, like, some of the other crews, even, like, historically that we had issues with. But, I mean, like, when I say historically had issues with, it's, like, we're talking about, like, giant fights at the club, like, like serious, serious stuff. So, I think that 
but your crew can fight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're like lethal. Yeah. So, yeah. It's not, it's not necessarily me. I won't even I've say been, I'm I've been in clubs with I've been in, in clubs with them before in, in that time. And, yeah, oh especially at that time. Gosh. Yeah. They is, weren't to be messed with, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was definitely another part of this whole thing that it's not, it's really interesting. It's not necessarily something that should be congratulated on, but at the same time, just as far as like being real about it of like, what were the stakes and how do people really feel? And it was like, it was very serious to certain people, which why is why, you know, when it comes to battling, I never have, or maybe like very early on or something, but just like for a good amount of time. And I almost think ever, I've never done like sort of very offensive gestures or whatever, just like gestures that other people wouldn't even consider offensive or they're just like, oh yeah, you just do that in battle sometimes. Just like even the finger or whatever. I was like, nope, I wouldn't do it. I don't do it because it was just like, there were other stakes at that time. And it's just like, yeah, you, you didn't, if you did that to the wrong crew, like shit would get handled and not in the battle without painting it as like, it was like such a crazy environment. It was definitely different. And yeah, there was just a definite, like stronger rivalry, but then even animosity on another level that was going on. And so you just approached everything a little bit differently. So then how did the B-boy now transition into the DJ? The journey that I went on, kind of the path that I went on, wasn't something where I was like, oh, I'm doing this one thing, now let me switch to this other thing. It was more like, I, you know, with the exception of recently where it's been really bad, it's like, I still break. I like breaking. And it was never like, this is going to replace that thing. It was more just like, I am simultaneously interested in this thing. And so actually, when I first got interested in DJing, I was just interested to learn how to scratch. There was no idea about like, oh, let me learn this because I'm already breaking and I could learn how to DJ and now I'll DJ a jam and do this. It's like, nope, none of that. It was just like, I wanted to learn how to scratch. That was it. I thought scratching sounded cool. I liked hearing it in songs. I was just like, all right. I do feel like I had a bit of motiv- like self-motivation for a lot of these things where it was kind of like in my head, I thought, oh, well, if I want to like learn how to do this or if I think this is cool, why don't I just like learn how to do it? And then figure out a way to like save a lot of money to get turntables. And it was like that was built up little by little. Like mm-hmm. I got a mixer first and then I kind of waited. And my friend who was a DJ finally told me, oh, I found two Techniques 1200s for for $400. And then I like was like borrowing money from friends and doing whatever I had to do to get them. But it built up slowly. And again, it was all just for the sake of learning how to scratch. That was it. I just want to learn how to scratch. I thought it sounded cool. And then later, that took me down a cool path of discovering music, starting to understand what was being played at the Breaking Jams, and starting to want to discover more and discover my own version of it and whatever. But yeah, initially it was just scratching. But then simultaneously, it's like, and then I was breaking. But they weren't definitely at the beginning. And for the first probably couple of years, they weren't really connected at all. How was it for you once you started DJing for like b-boy jam specifically because i feel like spinning for a jam is a very particular set of skills versus like a nightclub or yeah. djing for rappers so how was that for you i guess it didn't really intimidate me in the way that djing for like a club would would intimidate me because i was just like around that music so much that i knew that i knew it i obviously didn't have all the records like i had some but i was like trying to like 
my own little digs that I had. I was like, oh, this sounds cool. Let me play this. I had whatever, you know, like some ultimate breaks and beats, of course. And then, yeah, just anything else that I had found in digging for probably the first jam I did was probably, I think it was like 2005 and 2006. And it was maybe like one jam each year. I started digging more so around 2003. So it was just like, okay, it's about two years of digging worth of music kind of thing. And yeah, you know, I probably went fine. I guess it's kind of weird because I wasn't that intimidated to do it. I feel like uh, how I actually did. I actually would be kind of interesting if I was able to hear what I spun. I know some of the stuff I spun and I can still remember it when I did it. But yeah, you know, it was something that without knowing exactly how good or bad I did, it felt like I did decent at least, you know, and it was just something that I thought was natural because I knew all that music and I'd heard some of it I heard spun before. So I knew like, okay, this will go good with this or whatever. Just kind of went head on into it. I forget if I practiced for it or what. I'm sure I had to do a little something, but like, it was just, yeah, it's pretty, I mean, now we're talking like that was 15 years ago. So you're like, this is fine. Probably, probably half, half. Okay. Maybe half bad, but yeah, it was fun. I feel like often we don't, at the time we were all you know, teenagers or young adults we weren't really thinking about it too seriously no definitely not. it was like fun it was like oh cool i get to spin i organized my own event and then i didn't know any break djs at the time so i was like i'm just gonna spin it myself yeah that's a great way to do it build it yourself build it yourself and then hone your skills because the thing that you built needs the that skill you know present you dj'd the youth olympics oh yeah like, you don't ever think about Youth Olympics and, like, DJ, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, it's like, especially in this culture, what was that like? That was interesting. I mean, I think Lean and I, yeah, I guess we're, like, the first ones to do think something involved with the Olympics, in this case, the Youth Olympics, but we were, we were the first ones to DJ. And, yeah, that was very interesting, a very interesting experience. It was, like, pretty similar to other jam experiences that I've had. I feel like... It's being organized by a big, like, kind of governing body, which is, like, the World Dance Sport Federation. And so just not being steeped in hip-hop, per se, they had to be led, you know, to a couple of things like, hey, it'd be cool if people sit on the floor. Hey, there'd be cool if we did this and that. And it was kind of cool because they were open enough to sort of change a couple of the things about what they were initially thinking they were going to do and then what they ended up doing, which just, you know, more or less made it feel like, you know, it wasn't a jam because you don't have ciphers and these other things and everything is pretty carefully regulated. But at the same time, it did feel like normal battles. Like if you're doing a bracket at a battle at a regular, you know, jam and compared to this, it'd be pretty much the same. You know, I guess the, the judging system was like a slightly different thing and whatever, but generally it was, it was very close. And so I was actually pretty happy with how they executed it, considering like, you know, just sort of how it could have happened. You know, there's, there's definitely way worse scenarios. And this one was a pretty good one. And on top of that, the cool thing was as well that got an incredible amount of tension from people. Mm -hmm. So like just based off of what I saw, it's like the crowds for what we were doing and what was happening were just really big where for the most part with all the Youth Olympic stuff, there weren't that big of crowds. Mm -hmm. 
You know, like, I mean, people came through to watch things, of course, but did you see like this kind of critical mass, like this big amount of people, an overflow, people like that weren't able to get into the actual stands? They were actually like looking up and being able, looking over from the side and being able to see it. Did you tend to see that with everything else? And the answer, at least from what I saw, I didn't see everything, I was busy, but like, uh, was no. And so I guess that was the cool thing about it is that I'm doing this thing. It's mostly keeping in line with how we go about doing things, which I'm sure will be the same with uh, the Olympics as well. So it's like I have a pretty good confidence that, you know, there's just going to be a lot that's familiar. There's going to be a lot that is as true to the culture or something like that can be. And then and the other thing is that like, it's something that I think a lot of people are really excited about. So those are the things that I kind of got out of it, you know, and I thought that it was good that there was an ability for it to run the way it did, given the possibilities of like, you know, just how wrong things could go. Mm -hmm. If you have someone that doesn't matter who it is, that's coming into something and trying to run events for the first time. It's just like, you know, we all know there's people with, even if they have experience in general, if they don't have experience in this, there's a lot of oversights that can happen. And I feel like they, yeah, they did a really good job. So it was, it was a cool experience for sure. And we'll see. It looks like they're scheduled to have breaking again, I think in the youth Olympic games in 2022 and then in the Olympics in 2024. And yeah, I guess depending on what I do or don't do or whatever, <laughs> maybe I'll be a part of that, but without, you know, even necessarily caring too much or, or thinking about that, you know, I just say that the initial experience, that first one was good. It was a good one. So. It would be interesting to see how it is scaled up. Well, you're probably the first Olympic DJ. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Me, yeah. Me, me and Lean. Yeah. First yeah. Olympic DJs. <laughs> Pretty dope title. A DJ. <laughs> I would definitely put that in my... Put that in your resume. Official Olympic DJ. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't... I can't, I can't win a gold medal in it, but <laughs> but I was integral in, in some kind of way. Yeah. What is your take on like DJing for jams was very much focused on digging. I feel like there were yeah, it was. a few people that were into producing at the time, especially in Europe. There were a few guys yeah. um, that were doing their own breaks at the time. A lot of like electro influence. Yeah. Um, for me, like DJ Defcut and Zeb Roxky and That's right, yeah, folks okay. like that, or at least the DJs that I was really looking up to were like heavy diggers. Yeah. Like DJ Voodoo, uh, DJ Lacey. Voodoo, Lacey, um, yeah. And then over the years, I feel like there was a shift into creating more original content or, you know, producing your own tracks. Yeah. What was your experience with that? Because now you're well known as one of the you know best break producers in the world i don't know about all that but uh you know no but uh as far as the guys stop <laughs> you're blushing a lot of, there's just you know always always work to be done but like as far as starting out with it yeah there was a lot of that emphasis and it was kind of cool because i remember some of the first jams that i ended up doing a little bit later so i did some of those first jams i know i did one in 2006 that was my first 2005 was like i played like a cypher at a jam 2006 was like i played more of the jam and i think there was one in 2007 too yeah again generally like not huge amounts of djing at those times but it was all vinyl and so in doing all vinyl it was like stuff that i dug and whether all of it was like the deepest cuts or not, maybe not, you know, it's like I didn't have the knowledge or wasn't spending the full amount of time and whatever to really be 
in it to the degree that like a Lacey would be. It was just like I was just way far behind at that point. Um, and he was a huge inspiration for that. But, you know, I tried my best and I would go to record fairs and started like buying 45s. I'm like, oh, there's stuff on here that's real cool. That's not like, you know, the other stuff. And I remember, yeah, DJing those jams and just like a combination of like 45s, LPs, stuff that was really a lot like soul funk based. So, so a lot of it wasn't about I didn't necessarily have all of the exact breaks. So I was just playing full songs. You know, but Shell's still trying to like get them to whatever mesh together and whatnot. And yeah, then at a certain point, I remember I employed the use of one, count them one CDJ. And that was for like tracks that I'd heard online that people were sharing around. I was like, oh, this is a cool track. Let me, I want to like make battles more hype or I want to be able to include this. So whether it's that or maybe even some classic hip hop that I didn't have on vinyl and I would start, you know, incorporating like one CDJ into it and then eventually getting into Serato and that kind of makes things just so easy to find all of your music online or rip some of your records and have that combination of it so that you really have deep, deep crates. And then I'm just trying to think, I guess maybe around 2000. 11 is when I started sort of making or trying to make my own breaks and edits of things. I guess other people were doing it at the same time. I remember there were other things coming out of Europe. I wasn't a fan of all of it per se, like some of the battle of the year stuff and whatever. But like, yeah, I guess around then, but then even before then, as you were saying, there were some of these like made for breaking beats or just really heavily focused on that. And yeah, I, I started when I got production software, I guess I started working on that a little bit. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to start really doing this now. It was just like, oh, I have this idea. I think this would be cool. Let me do this. And this is something that's going to be a little bit different than just spinning the regular funk soul records that we spin all the time. And then like, you know, I did it and then people got hype where they started to look like it and be like, oh yeah, Flag's got that one track that's this, whatever. And that started to obviously snowball into producing more and more and then being like, oh, they like that because of this or this reason. Well, let me try to like flip this sample. Let me see what I can do here. And that also coincided with me getting better at production, you know, like digital production, which I didn't know how to do at all. I just sort of had to top, teach myself because I was like, well, this seems like it's the future. So I guess I was kind of right. But Were there any resources that were very helpful to you during the time that you were teaching yourself? Not really. I just kind of learned. Yeah, Learning I, by doing? Yeah, there wasn't really, I wasn't really looking at a lot of like tutorials and probably not that many were out by then. Maybe there were some you know, and occasionally, and now I do is look at a few if I need to do a specific thing on a program that I don't know how to do, but I know it's possible. There was a good friend of mine, Brandon, who is a studio engineer, and he would help me out a little bit with like showing me, oh, you could do this. Another friend, Cam, who's a DJ and also producer. And they would all give me same same kind of thing as the breaking thing. It was just like, you know, I definitely give him props for helping me out teaching me things about it, but it wasn't like a, here, this is coming here every day, blah, blah, blah. This is how we're going to, I'm going to teach you how to do all this. And it's just like, you know, it gave me some, some really good tips some things that I still use and all that. But then it was kind of like, all right, now go off and do what you will with it. Like continue learning and go through your own journey with it. For me growing up as a DJ, oftentimes like somebody would, discover either dig a beat or produce a beat and stuff like that was that dj's beat like you would not go 
Yeah, you as another DJ, you would not necessarily want to be playing other DJs' yeah. beats, right? Um, but now, when you have this limited pool of cleared music, how is it for you? Do you feel any certain type of way if you see other DJs playing your beats? I don't really care at this point because I'm just like, oh, okay, that's just like compliment to me like oh i decided to play this of this pool and i'm like cool you like that and that's cool i feel like other people play it that don't have to play from a pool of music just because that's all they know you know and it's just like again actually you know sometimes it's like that could be kind of cool to be honest you should probably know some other music mm-hmm. besides just like the made for breaking music that we make because certainly myself and the other djs that are really serious about this that make it also know all of that other music too mm-hmm. and it's just like okay I would want them to do more of their research, but that's the easiest thing in front of them. And, you know, it's another, it's a attribute of the digital world of things where it is easy to get like another DJ's track. It's right there. It's on YouTube or it's like downloadable or it's whatever. And so you just grab it and then you start playing it. And that's that, you know, like it's, it's super easy and they know that it'll work kind of thing. And that's why I think a lot that don't even have that, those uh parameters you know like that they have to play clear in music even they a lot of people are playing our music and yeah yeah you know it's like i feel like they should should do more digging and research into it but it's like does it really bother me that much i'm like nah, it's fine probably used to but i don't really care anymore i feel like probably 20 years ago when i started it was also like you had to buy the vinyl when it was like oh well if you press it on vinyl and you put it out yeah then you kind of gave your okay for others to play yeah i think so um but now in the digital age you can't really signal or not signal that like it's different it's not up for download oh don't care yeah (laughs) Yeah. well and sometimes it gets ridiculous too it's like they'll take the video off of like the battle footage right and then they'll make the video out of that i'm like what are you guys doing man like this sounds terrible and like you're like kind of almost messing up the integrity of my track by putting it in such a bad quality and whatever Mm. And then that video has like 300,000 views. I'm like, what are you guys doing, man? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Be like, here's the real trick. <laughs> yeah. And then I put that up and then I like, I sell like five of them. <laughs> I sell like five digitally. But all good. You're not just a DJ, but you're also a musician, a composer. Mm-hmm. How do you balance that life with like also doing the nightclub parties and yeah the actual jams and the travel like do you have a formula or is it just unfortunately i probably should the part of it is that i think it just depends on the time of year like whatever tends to be happening the most the other part of it is that it's difficult in general there's the one thing about the scheduling portion or the like job attribute differences so in other words like the nightlife will be like okay you're around you got you know a lot of people drinking and it's like loud boisterous environment whatever music production is like very like you're alone most of the time and it's just like you're very concentrated into strictly like the music portion of it music production for like hip-hop or house make look different for like making breakbeats you know um and then djing a jam is way different than a club and it's very different than making the music thing so they're all very different and yeah, I guess t- another thing is it, it does, it is hard if I'm busy and even sometimes when I'm not to go from one speed to another. 
Like sometimes I get really into production and I'll be like so into production that like, let's say I don't have a gig on a weekend. It's just like, I'll be at the studio till like 2am, 3am, like, and not care that I'm missing a Friday night out, a Saturday night. Like I don't care at all. And I'm just like so much into the production side of things. Now, then there are other times that it's like, I'm in the DJing mode of things and it's just hard for me to get into the production. So I guess I kind of like doing them in blocks I want when I do when I'm doing production to have more time to be able to feel things out and do things rather than just be yeah I don't know you know like rather than just be um trying to juggle that with like okay I got this many hours this day and now but then tonight I have to go DJ and oh yeah before I DJ I have to go prepare stuff and you know what I mean it's just like it's so much to juggle that I think it's hard for anyone the best people are super probably scheduled out and really have an exact thing like i'm practicing from this to this time because the other thing is musicianship which to be honest i haven't been able to improve upon as much as i'd like to i know i used to play a good amount of jazz piano i could play saxophone you know but my tone intonation and certain things like that isn't great because you know you have to train your mouth your embouchure to like really remember you know and have the strength and these tiny little muscles in your face to have the strength to like play certain notes and to like play them in tune and all that kind of stuff and that takes just straight up practice so now we're not even talking about just the production side of it we're talking about maintaining the skills and then learning new skills that help with the production but that in and of themselves are just about you learning and maintaining skills on an instrument you know which is the same as like learning and maintaining skills on the floor if you don't practice like you're gonna lose it and yeah and so when you're balancing that many things practicing the instrument doing the production djing djing the different types of things preparing for djing those different types of things like now we're talking about some stuff that if you're doing all those things which in various times i'm expected to do all those things you know it's like I'm supposed to DJ, let's say, a Red Bull BC1, which is a jam, the music that I made that I have to make during the music production that I have to make maybe extra good by practicing the piano or the other things. So it's like they're all linked, but finding the exact way that all of them link together perfectly for me is just like a little bit of a nightmare of um, priority, I guess, and scheduling. So... Yeah, I definitely haven't cracked that code. It's something that I would like to, but to be honest, also requires a good deal more of focus than I have right now. So it's a lot of improvements I feel like I have to make. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. So making good music, though. Yeah, and I feel the tricky part is some of it is execution, like skills that you've owned in or that you've built up over years and years that you're prepared for and you just need to execute like let's say you're spinning at a nightclub yeah yeah there's some preparation that goes into it but ultimately if i put you on the spot and say you got to spin tonight here you can do it yeah and that's part of what funds your time that you can invest in the other things you right. do yeah so it's like sometimes you can't just force the creativity that you need for i was called musician side of you right where you can say okay, now I have two hours, great. I'm just going to go compose and be in that creative mindset. Um, so I find that balance super hard. And I'm like really impressed by anyone that's able to do that. Yeah, I mean, I try to do it. It's hard to always make it succeed, but yeah, I do try to do it. 
Well, big kudos to you. Thanks, bro. So what is your perspective about having to play from a pool of cleared music? Yeah, I mean, it's always limiting because a lot of the foundation, the whole foundation of the dance was on just like the music that it was on a certain canon, you know, if you will, like a certain collection of breaks, which are now pretty much like encompassed in like the ultimate breaks and beats. And it was just like, that was the foundation foundation. It's like, you don't have to only play those, but it's like, you should know how to play them and still keep a room, you know, hype, like in a bunch of B-Boys hype, which for me is fun to play all classics and have, but still do it in an interesting way and have people enjoy it and then mix it in with new stuff and whatever else. Yeah. You know, so given that that is sort of the foundation of the dance, it is a little restricting when you can't do that. You know, and another foundation is like the idea of digging and digging for something that you like. And it doesn't, it's not necessarily something you made, but it's like digging for other things that have dope drums, dope, whatever, you know, uh, portions to break to. And so when you're restricted and you can't do that, it's always constraining. But then it's like, with that, you have to try and both on the production side and then on the DJing side to make it as much of a balance as you can, sort of. For instance, I made a couple of tracks that I was telling you about with a full band and those tracks, I feel like, you know, I was pretty happy with how they turned out. And I knew that, that I designed them specifically like, okay, this has like, you know, I wrote the whole song, I wrote the horn parts, I wrote the, the lyrics for it, I wrote everything. And then it was like, I have, you know, soul singer sing it, the horn section do their parts, the drummer, all that kind of stuff. And then I knew that like, okay, I'm going to make a break right here. And this is something the DJ which might be me, might be someone else, will be able to like, you know, scratch and, you know, juggle and this and that. And so then it's like when I get to a situation like that where I can only play clear music, then I end up using stuff like that that has an organic feel to it so that in between some of these other more produced sounding like breaks that we end up playing, I'm playing something that sounds like a full band. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like something that I may have been able to dig for. And then like I made a track that's Latin funk. So I have a track that sounds like something that you would dance to that's Latin funk, but it's something that I made versus something I dug. And then I have like a couple tracks with people rapping on them. Same reason. So I think that it's like, that's where the combination of production and knowing that you're going to have those situations and producing based off of that come in handy because, or not come in handy, but it's like, that's where it's sort of the doing the best, finding the most balance within what you have, which is also what you have created. And so creating a balance of things and then playing that balance of things, even though you're still limited, at least, you know, you gave a live band, you know, you put that in the mix, you put someone rhyming in the mix you did all that stuff so that's the closest i can come it's still not ideal but at least it's something that is the closest i can come to sort of emulating the balance that i would want if i just had free reign to play whatever i want let's check out your song called vibrational force Vibration force. One, two, three, go. Feel the base in your waist from the percussion. 
watching this every seven. Hundred of your muscle of function, if you're the little bit swumbling from your stomach, circumference, somebody in the conundrum that got you stuck to your plumbing. Some days the gloomy is like the juvie is fast, you keeping the hands up like the studious interactions. You about to blow like a nuclear apparatus, it's feeling deep in your own. Who's the gluteus accident? Dark and elegance, this spawn to billions of a million strong alarm, arm civilians looking for reparation for those conquered indigenous. One, two, three, go, move. The vibration of force, move. down because I don't think too many people know how much work goes into your track you know like yeah, no. for you to to do that and also <laughs> to do that for, for many tracks that you have to use over an entire battles you know yeah. like several battles yeah. I think being able to for people to understand the complexity of what it is that you're doing yeah and that that type of skill that is it's just yeah. that's a lot physically technically i mean time wise time wise just your time it's right? a lot of balance again like i was saying about yeah. when i'm telling you that i'm serious about that it is hard for me to figure out exactly how to structure and balance my time because i am you know really dealing with so many different aspects you know how do you monetize that yeah it's i mean also difficult I would obviously like to monetize it highly, <laughs> but then it's not just about how I monetize it. It's also about what people value. And so it's like, I can't, I can try to steer that as best as I can. And I do. And it's got, it gets better. You have more sort of say, so if you've done, you made a bunch of tracks and they have an impact and people enjoy them. I feel like you have a little bit more negotiating power. To be able to say, okay, well, this is worth this much, and this is worth this much, and please pay me that because this is legit a lot of time and expertise and all these other things that I'm putting into doing all this stuff. But how exactly it gets monetized as far as on the other end and what they agree to, budgetary constraints or them not knowing the full story of what it takes to make this stuff could be something that kind of both those things could be something that kind of is like, well, I think I should get paid this much, but I might not because of these other reasons. Mm. So you could either get paid for a beat up front or then collect the royalties when it's used. But or you can get both, which is kind of cool. Right. But that actually probably already has happened. And the way that I'll know it happened, it happened because I still have to like get some of my publishing stuff, which deals with the royalties. I have to get some of my publishing stuff in order. But the point is once I put that in there, then they're going to scour. Once I like get all of my information completed, which is just something that's been taking me a little while to do. Um, but it's not that difficult really. And it's like, I put some of my tracks up on Spotify and all that kind of stuff. And then I have a certain number associated with it. After I have that number associated with it, it's an official, 
number that is registered for that track. Then I give that to a publisher and the publisher goes back through everything, anything that they have that's like a algorithm they have to go through all of like, let's say YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and whatever. And anything that's monetized or any money that was made because of those tracks, which like people upload my stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so anything that was made based off that, boom, then I get the royalties from that. So I, and it's like, and some of those tracks that I'm getting the royalties from, I could have already, and it is true that I already was paid upfront to make them. So I can't have both of those things, uh, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Well, How much good. the royalties actually pay. It's like, you know, it might differ, but. But I think that's important, especially for aspiring producers to hear, or at least to have a mental framework of that that is possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's more, as much as the digital realm isn't very lucrative in a lot of ways, there are ways that it can also be somewhat lucrative. And one of those ways is he has to get, you know, commissioned to license a track. And then hopefully that also that track could be used somewhere else and somewhere else and somewhere else. And it's like then you end up, you know, having a good amount of potential royalties that come in or even new, uh, if like, let's say someone, the more your track is out there, put it this way, the better. And so like someone hears it and they're like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to use that for my video. They put it up on YouTube, whatever. I can approve it or not approve it. I approve it. Then some of the royalty money from publishing comes to me, depending on, you know, how many views they get and whatever. On top of that, maybe someone else hears it and says, like, oh, I want to include that, like, in my film. And so right now, it's mostly just been breaking films. But it's, like, there's something that, like, for instance, uh, Logistics is doing. She's doing, she's doing, uh, she's having, like, a whole little documentary about her. Or I think it's mm-hmm. a whole documentary. Yeah. And it's pretty serious. And it's, like, a big production. Mm-hmm. And then she hit me up and was just, like, oh, you know, can I use some of your music? Or can you figure this out to get some of your music in here? And I was just, like, of course. And for me, it's just, like awesome thanks logistics like you know you're helping me out because i'm not only was potentially some of the music they might want to use stuff i've already gotten paid for now it's like i'm going to get paid again for it because i'm going to make a new deal with this production company about oh you want to use this specifically for this and let's say i don't get any royalties from it okay well then the upfront better be great or maybe like i get some upfront thing that's like you know good rate because they have a big production budget Mm -hmm. and a lot of times they have a lot of money for music on the music uh, on the movies or documentary side of things, they do have big mm-hmm. music budgets, which is kind of ironic because then on just straight music things that should be devoted to it, they have terrible budgets. Right. <laughs> but that's, yeah. you know, how it goes. And so, yeah, you know, they'll, they, might, they have, might have a budget and I'll be like, okay, cool. Can I get this amount? And also this is registered with this already. So I'm going to allow you to use it, but then just know that like, wherever this is played, when it comes to that song portion of it, I also will get, you know, it will come into probably your pockets for not crazy amounts, but at least some amount of the royalties or the publishing mm-hmm. that comes from that. So, yeah, you know, it's uh, something that there's a lot of other ways to play it, you know, than just trying to sell it on your own, which is cool. And even, like I said, in the era of the Internet devaluing a lot of art, this is one way that the artist can get paid some. So, yeah, you know, anytime I get an opportunity like that and it's happened a few times, I'm like, all right, cool. That's great. Let's do it. Yeah, support your artist. Does it also include TikTok? TikTok is so big now. It probably does, to be honest. It probably yeah, does. I would I, definitely I think sure all it's those things that. because I think all the major <laughs> music conglomerates or big, you know, uh companies know that they have to and and are really probably have made it very clear to some of these social media networks like like you have to let us 
put our algorithm sort of into your uh, and include it in your social network so that if we hear some of our songs being played and someone's monetizing in some way that we get paid. I mean, because they don't mess around like yeah. the big music labels or it's like the, yeah. even the larger, maybe it's not just a label, it's like Universal Music Group, right. which like under them, there are like hundreds of labels, you right. know, associated, whatever. But it's just like under Universal, it's like, you know, or Sony or something. It's just like they're going to be like, yo, this, this is our music. This is under our umbrella like if we find it somewhere we better be getting paid you know if not it's like especially if it's on a bigger scale it's like maybe cease to desist maybe it'll just like automatically mute it mm-hmm. whatever it might be but it's just like they're gonna find their way to get their money right. who were some of the people that you looked up to or that kind of mentored you and was there any piece of advice that kind of stuck with you or that you remember um i feel like in all of the elements that i've sort of been a part of uh, which is like, I know a little bit graffiti. I used to get up a little bit, not much. It's not enough at all ever to consider myself like, oh, I did that a lot. But it's like, you know, I liked it. I enjoyed it. In breaking and in DJing, there were some people that definitely helped me a little bit. And there would just be some people to kind of give me some guidance on a few things. And then it was like, okay, be off, be free, go do your thing. But other people, I guess, that did that for me, a lot of some of the people that are now part of my crew that I'm now in, Atomic Goofball and his crew, which was the ABC crew at that time. And then he was later also part of a crew that I was a part of. But like, but even from that time when I started out, you know, he and a couple of his friends were all like really silly and they made like stupid jokes. And it's like I connected really a lot with them because of that and just because of their humor. And I could tell that, like I said, knowing that some people had such high stakes and were so serious about breaking even if those people now I'm cool with or that I learned weren't sort of as scary as I thought they were, there was just certain people that I weren't going to really approach. I just wouldn't begin to approach of like, hey, can you help me out with this, that, or whatever. But when it came to that kind of group of people, they were just really cool from the get-go. And so I felt comfortable enough to like ask them certain things. Evil Ben is a guy who also like taught a lot of people in our area. And I don't think a lot of people outside or not as many know about him especially newer generations but he's a really influential for like the maryland style and was actually pretty much a member of loz for a while you know they have you you can see a lot of similarities in style and he influenced a lot of people but he was someone who was really helpful to so many people in the scene as far as like breaking down moves and again it wasn't like completely oh every time i go to practice he's going to give me something to work on or like this is how it's going to go but it's just like if you had a problem if you had a question about like how do i do this move you know what's going on with this he would kind of walk you through it and break it down when i first heard your music i really appreciated the way that you would make Latin funk tracks your own. And then I was like, oh, Flag, it's, it's a white kid. <laughs> I was like, he's got that flavor. Like, it's like, yo, where is he learning this shit from? Where does his love for music come from? I mean, the tracks that you that you play or that get you right into where you want to really want to dance. Yeah, I, that's that's my goal anyway. Sometimes it doesn't work probably, but like, I guess that's why maybe I connected with some people, you know, and hopefully a lot of people. And it was because I was trying to identify those things I guess that also would make me hype that I want to dance to. And yeah, and some of those mixtapes, especially when, you know, with Serato, you had, like you could use loops and you could do other things like that. I was just like, you know, there are people that were kind of against that at first and now use it, of course. And there are people, even the style that I started doing on it, people weren't 
maybe uh, older school guys didn't like it as much. But it's like for me, it was like, oh, I can do kind of like production and I can do something cool that's unique and creative in real time. And that was always something as like coming from a musician background, because I've always been a musician, like since way before I was into breaking or DJing or anything. And it's just like, that was really interesting to me personally. And then at the same time, yeah, I guess I could make some things that sort of were reimaginations or at least slight different kind of uh, versions of songs that maybe you already knew. I think that advantage too of you being a dancer. So it's kind of like, I would dance to this, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I always say that I would do, like, for my mixes or for if I had, like, some, you know, track that I was working on, I would always do the top rock test. Yeah. Like, in my room, and I'm just like, yeah, I dance this, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. And now that top rock test, it might not pass for some of the ones that I made from then uh-huh. because i grown and I'm different as a dancer. But at the time, anyway, I was just like, ah, oh, this is cool. It's good for you. I like this, yeah. You also lived in Brazil for a while, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Can you tell us a bit about the story of what led you to Brazil and what you took away from that experience? For sure. Yeah. I mean, it was just music. That was what I fell in love with before I went to Brazil. And so I was studying government and politics in uh, at the University of Maryland. But really, the reason that I went down there was for music. It was like 100%. You know, and I just really, really started to love that music when i heard it when i discovered it and i was like oh damn like i gotta like i need to like hear more of this i need to find where the source is you know i need to go to the mecca and to go even a little bit before then it's possible that i think that my experience like with my dad growing up playing music along with the record player that was like the introduction of records so you know there's there's one mystery down and then the other thing is there was a lot of jazz and it was also, there was like Latin jazz in there too. So there would be like Tito Puente and there's, there's some albums that were basically jazz guys, but that did collaborations with mm-hmm. Brazilian artists. And so it was like all Bossa Nova. Mm-hmm. So whether it was like kind of even Dizzy Gillespie doing a lot of like stuff that was Cuban jazz based and a lot of guys were really influenced by the cuban jazz scene because the players were just like killer Mm -hmm. and like you listen to some of the cuban maybe more salsa or it's considered like i guess cuban jazz but it has like a more definitely a very latin feel that can really be easily almost turned into latin funk or some of it is on the same album it'll be like a cuban jazz song and then something that's really latin funk oriented Mm -hmm. but i think that it's very possible that both the jazz musicians that were doing those collaborations with the Brazilian artists and Bossa Nova stuff that I heard and the Cuban jazz influenced stuff that probably influenced a lot. The, my enjoyment of hearing like some of those polyrhythms and some of those the attributes of Latin music that then I started to hear the same thing in Latin funk and, you know, enjoyed playing. But uh, yeah. So, and then, I didn't think about it actually until now, but maybe, yeah, my dad's playing some of the Brazilian stuff, put a little bit of the seed in my head. Later on, it was college, and my friends sort of showed me some Bossa Nova, Stan Getz album, Stan Getz and João Gilberto, and that album was just, like, beautiful, but it's, like, calm. It's Bossa Nova. It's, like, beautiful and calm, and I was like, this is amazing. This is really dope. And then I started getting more and more Brazilian music, and when you start to hear from Bossa Nova, which is this sort of, like, trying to be a refined version of Brazilian music. Mm-hmm. And then you start to get into the rawer parts of Brazilian music, like different kinds of samba and samba funk and all of that. And it's like crazy. And so like, it was kind of like seeing like a diamond 
and then you get closer and you kind of like brush away some whatever you know other dirt and then all of a sudden you use this giant mountain of diamonds and that's kind of what it felt like discovering it and i guess even before i went there so then i took some classes in portuguese and i was like i really want to understand what they're saying and then after that i was just like oh i can do a an exchange program program in brazil yeah okay cool that's gonna happen <laughs> so i did that and i stayed there i went there to in quote study but it's like really i was going there for music and yeah of course going there just like seeing being surrounded by that culture digging for records and stuff but even the the best part of it was like music on the street and i remember like it was like i think the first day that i was there and i was able to walk on the street and the people that i was staying with they were a little bit like you know just trying to be protective and they're like oh don't go too far off and don't whatever and they're probably right because rio is pretty dangerous i learned how to navigate it but i also learned not to just be completely scared either and i did a lot of crazy things <laughs> went to some crazy places but the yeah i just remember the first time i was walking with the other dude who was part of this exchange program who was french and we're like walking down the street and i hear them playing like samba at the side bar or whatever and i'm like i hear it and i'm just like transfixed i'm like this is crazy like this is so fucking dope i've never heard this before and then like he could care less. He was just like there, you know, for music people, it's always a, fu a funny experience, not fun, but funny experience when you're with someone else who isn't like that much of a music person and you're just completely like, you know, just mesmerized mesmerized yeah. yeah by by some music that's happening that's just incredible to you and you're like wow this is amazing and then you kind of look over and they're just like yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's okay yeah, like, it's like don't you hear it yeah it's like yeah it's like <laughs> can you not feel this uh so but yeah and so that was like the first of many and it was just really amazing being there around carnival time seeing huge just like oh, wow. you know called blocos like as in blocks um just enormous amounts of people that are all drummers and just like that energy is almost indescribable and yeah and so there were just countless experiences with music there and yeah so definitely aside from directly taking the records back that i ended up digging i also learned a lot or just heard a lot of incredible music and maybe some of that stayed with me as well oh no for sure now it makes sense because that was something that i think for me as a dancer when i first saw you playing at jams i was like i like this guy i don't know as a latina i'm like yo i'm feeling this even your mixes that you came out with were a lot of fun. I could, I could play it in my family who, many of them, you know, were enjoying it too, but it wasn't because it wasn't like, oh, you're breaking music. Oh, you know? interesting. Okay. That's good to hear. I never know or assume anything about any kind of impact of it. And especially like I could never speak to like your experience of like, you know, being Latina or whatever, you know, and say like, oh, I bet they're going to really enjoy this. And it's not, it's, and it wasn't for that purpose either. Right. It's just like, that's what I felt. And I thought this would be cool. It's something I would want to hear. And it's like, if that connects with other people, like that's dope. I'm really happy about that. Are there any experiences throughout your travels that stand out? There's like a couple of experiences in Japan that were like that. And they were just so raw it was like but it, i i feel like there are times when things can get so raw that it's just like okay now it's like scaring all the ladies away <laughs> and then, like that's like that's the point where it's like okay yeah i guess this is like real hip-hop or this is like really hardcore in a certain way but it's not like 
<laughs> all all inclusive and it's just like it's not even about like having a me having to have a conscious sort of measure of like is this inclusive or not it's more just like the vibe if if yeah. girls aren't vibing in the place or if there isn't sort of a levity about the energy it can be sort of devoted and and focused in in the breaking portion of it but if there isn't some other like sort of cheer in the air which exactly. is like which like women definitely you know infuse men can too of course but it, it involves them being a little bit more aware whether it's men or women and we all know that women probably tend to be more aware in general there are a lot of reasons for that but like it's about that awareness of like well when is the appropriate time for me to just like go ham when is the appropriate time for me to just like groove outside the circle you don't have to be in the circle to be feeling it you know and sometimes i see like these people that are supposedly hardcore into you know breaking and into this song and whatever and like maybe that's what the event is set up around it's like all ciphers or cypher time and i'm just like yo if, if y'all are really feeling this music and you're the, about to be the next one going out into the circle why aren't you moving beforehand why because i'm the dj and for me djing like the way i look at a crowd is the way i look at a party and it's just like i want to see everyone moving you don't all have to be doing the same thing you don't have to be doing you know 12 air flares right here as you're standing on the side you know or as you go into the circle or like doing finding your own space to do it and everyone is going and being mayhem but like while that person is doing those moves in the center you can be on the side kind of like grooving and adding to the vibe and that's something that you know, it just depends. But sometimes I see it. A lot of times I don't. And when I do see it, like there's a, a, a jam that I went to. Um, Lean and I were actually chilling there for BC1 2016. And so we were chilling there and they're like, oh, you got to go to this this event. And the event was just like packed in this tiny ass spot. And then every like just the vibe in there was crazy. And everyone was feeling it so much. There was like a band in there too. And the band members were on the floor. And I saw a dude like battle the sax player. <laughs> so this like dude comes out and does a round. Then the sax player steps in. He's like <laughs> and it was just crazy. And you know that's the kind of thing where it's just like you can tell at that point like everyone is at such a high level of like awareness and enjoyment and sort of like you know pure spirit um coming through and appreciation of life and it's sort of all these things wrapped up into one and it's like when you step into a room like that you don't even have to see that happening per se to know that like something special is kind of going on and something really cool i feel there has been a trend in the breaking scene where it's become this competition or tournament mode where people will go, they'll be warming up for an hour. Okay, now it's prelim time. Right. Go and do my rounds. Then I stand around again. Then I do my it's rounds. Like oh, I lost. I'm going out of here. But it feels more like tournaments in gymnastics. Yeah, I feel like the similarity between what you just described and exactly what you think it resembles, like a martial arts thing or like a tennis match or something, is like you don't need to have a vibe for those events. Right. They can exist as the sport, the activity in and of itself, but you don't need one. And it's just like, I think that's uh, maybe could be one of the biggest takeaways, hopefully, if anyone, you know, is is listening, you know, that sort of doesn't know it already, that that is the biggest difference between what we do. It's like, for me, it's not just like, oh, no, that'd be nice to have a vibe. To me, it's like, I, that's kind of necessary. And I don't always feel it. And I'm like, you know, it'd be really cool if there's a vibe right now. And there's not. And like, to be honest, maybe this event kind of sucks. 
for me, doesn't have to mean that it sucks for everyone. Maybe someone really enjoyed a certain battle or whatever. But for me, it's like the vibe is really important that it that it be present, that there be a vibe there. It's not like those other things, despite having those similarities. It's not just the activity. It's about what the sort of interactive feeling between all the people in the room is and that feeling along with the activity. I think you've really been giving to the scene as a promoter of taking us back to there with like King of What or your Four Hours of Funk series where you make a statement to say, I'm bringing the vibe. Yeah, I try to facilitate as best as possible. Doesn't always work, maybe, but I really do try. And I feel like a lot of times it does work because I've really put, um, you know, a concerted effort into bringing the right elements into a room that will create that vibe. So, for instance, like when it comes to even a jam, it's like, okay, you make sure the music is right. Make sure the people that are spinning the music know sort of how to engage like the old heads in the room, the sort of in-between age, you know, the young kids, something that's able to speak to those different generations. And then I think the other part of it too is like getting the right people in the room, you know, like, and that involves specifically going after like, I know this person is dope. I know like when they are in the cypher or they're on the side of the cypher, they're emanating a spirit that other people are attracted to or other people just like start feeling. And it's just like when, when someone else is feeling it and they're not afraid to show you that they're feeling it, other people will be more willing to express themselves. They'll be disarmed a little bit. They'll be like, oh, okay, like it's okay for me to do this. That that guy who I really respect and who's this dope dancer, he's over there like, or she's over there, you know, really just feeling the music and they're not ashamed to dance, you know, on the side. They're not ashamed to whatever. And that always helps the overall vibe when you have those right people there. So yeah, it's just about the music and the people. Yeah, we're definitely the torch bearers for that. Yeah, last weekend we were just uh, chopping it up about like spinning for different types of events. Yeah. And like how weddings are generally the worst. Yeah. Or generally just like the most like kind of like the most pressure and the potential for the hardest audience to please because of the range of people that you have. And then especially if you're people that actually like music like us, it's kind of like then you might end up being beholden to play some really middle-of-the-road stuff just to satisfy everyone, but while not really playing anything that dope. Yeah, or you just end up being the jukebox. Yeah, of course. Um, One topic we always talk about in our podcast is health. We would be very interested in hearing about what you do for yourself to stay present and doing it without burning out, or what you do to prevent yourself from burning out. Yeah, and what you do to just stay healthy. I mean, I guess I'll say I some of my advice isn't super helpful because I have burned out a whole lot of times and felt like, man, this is like too much. And then, you know, I just go through some different stages of like, well, you know, sometimes like a deadline will kind of put it under, put a fire in my ass to be like, all right, you got to keep going. You got to make sure you do some things. You got to make sure you are, you know, prepare for this or create this track or do whatever. But, you know, really, yeah, when it comes down to it, as far as the mental health side, it's been tough. And I've, you know, had times where it's just like really was just way too much. It was way too much travel, whether it be like the time zones messing you up or just the fact that you're not home and you don't, you know, your relationships or other things can suffer from that. And there's a lot of aspects to that and mistakes that, you know, 
either mistakes that I've made or just like whether it's other people or even to myself where, you know, I just went too far or something and then kind of paid the price when I came back home and was trying to normalize things and whatever, whether just for myself or in a relationship. And it was just like, damn, like it's hard to be normal and have a normal interaction or interactions with people, you know, when you're really that far away and in that sort of that much of a scatterbrained kind of environment of doing all these different things, you know? And so, yeah, a lot of those times were tough and, you know, kind of still continue to be tough, to be honest. And so I have to try anyway. It's still lessons that I have to sort of keep in mind of like trying to take time to do stuff, you know, to take time for myself to be able to like decompress and relax. The only problem with that sometimes is then if I have too much time, that could turn into becoming really unproductive and being just like, you know, lazy or even getting depressed because I'm not forced to be doing certain activities. So it's this weird balance. And, you know, yeah, I haven't figured out a, an exact answer, to be honest, yet. I've, I keep pushing on because it's what I do. And it's just something that I also do for a living as well. But at times, you know, it is a very big challenge to know how to balance that. So I don't exactly have an answer for that. And the physical thing too. Also, you know, obviously there's times when I was drinking probably a lot more and it's like, I tried to cut down that and other, you know, drugs and things and whatever, but it's just like, do I have an exact answer for that? It's like, yeah, you should probably, people are traveling a lot or if they're doing a lot of this stuff full time, you know, you got to watch out that that party life doesn't just like, you know, kind of seep into everything you do or like affect other things that you're doing. And that happened too, you know, and it's, yeah, it really can have negative and very hurtful consequences again to yourself or other people. Just be aware of it and really try to sort of hold yourself together. And that might just mean like, maybe not going to all the parties, maybe not drinking as much or at all. Maybe, yeah, you know, like turning down a trip too so that's personally and it's and those are problems that i have you know and it's like everyone if you're not traveling that much you know you're like oh you get to travel that's so cool and it is but you know if you start to do that and that's your whole living where you're constantly on the move there's just like those problems become more i don't know just uh the realness the real side of that starts to become more apparent and it is something that one way or another you have to control or it's going to sort of control you you know, so that's not really exactly an answer. It's about, I guess, the fact that I'm still on the journey to try to figure out how that is best balanced. But I know at very least it's about like trying to actually limit at a certain point the amount of time that I'm away from from home. It's difficult even if you're not traveling to try to balance career, yeah. relationships, yeah. you know, yourself. I mean, and then add you know, changing time zones and things like that. I think that's it's very legitimate. If you could give your younger self a piece of advice, is there maybe something specific that you would have liked to have known earlier that would have been very helpful for you? Yeah, I mean, there are things, but there's also a point where, too, you have to make some of the mistakes in order to see how grave they can be, you know, and maybe some aren't that grave, but maybe they are, you know, and it's just like, I do also think about stuff like if I'm doing this stuff right now, you know, 
how is that affecting like my body, my liver and things like that. And there is, you know, in moderation, obviously it's fine. But again, if it's just like, you know, something that's really becomes a part of what you're doing, there were times where without being like an alcoholic per se, it was just like, there were times where I was just like, Oh, it's getting to about such and such a clock, like time to start drinking, you know, whatever. And it's like, when I did catch myself in that part of me not being really an alcoholic and having that like hardcore issue that I know some other friends have is that like I was able to identify it and then be like you know what no I can't do that this is like the wrong path to go down and then you know maybe it takes a couple days or a week to sort of get out of the habit and you feel a little bit weird because your body literally has been used to like this cycle every day of like this is what you do at this point of the day yeah you know so I guess it's just like maybe some of the times you have to make the mistakes to know that they're mistakes but then at the same time just being aware of those kind of patterns like trying to step back and being aware of negative you know or just like not ideal behaviors that you're repeating and it's like hey you know even if you are if you do have the more of the gene and tend towards like alcoholism if it's in your family or not it's still you can still be aware you can still try to figure it out and try to get help for that you know what I mean? And then we have friends like that and it's dope to see. So it's like, it's not just about like, in my case, because it wasn't like super severe that I was able to identify it, be aware of it, and then try to work towards a solution towards it. It's like, it could be really severe, but you still can identify it, be aware of it, and then try to work towards a solution. So in any stage, you can, you can work towards a better future. But, you know, I, to be, I guess sometimes it takes going through the experience and making maybe some of the mistakes first to start to realize that which you personally because everyone's a little different need to do to kind of like strike a balance in your life you know so yeah to the younger people it's more like i'm not against anyone like testing those some of those boundaries but just like know where you really shouldn't go and know where if you get there be able to have the awareness to know that this is too far at a certain point. So it's like always kind of reassessing it a little bit as you're going on. And it's like, if you're doing fine and things are working out okay, and it's not super, it's not negative, and you're just doing something in moderation, it's cool. But it's just like, if it's starting to affect some other things, if you're really noticing these big negative outcomes from it, it's like, okay, then maybe you got to make a change. Within the culture, and even within just growing up, having a counselor or speaking to someone outside of your family and outside of your partner and outside of your friends it helped me tremendously because you just go and you talk for your hour and then the person says okay we'll see yeah. you next week and yeah. you're just just being able to just kind of unload on someone that mm-hmm. has no personal attachment to you is really insightful because sometimes we have to hear ourselves at least for me with my clients too I, a lot of my work is having them actually speak what they're feeling in their bodies. Yeah. And just having the, them hear themselves, even the realization that they were even holding that there. Yeah. Causes a shift and this healing in them that now the next week they're able to deal with a little more. There's less chaos, you know? Yeah. You know, and to be honest, like there's been things I've been going through recently that I've actually thought really seriously about that because I think that, you know, there's a certain point where you're like, you know what, I might need to like just 
to have that other person to talk to that like it's been super dope you know talking to friends about things or whatever and they've been really helpful but there is also that yeah you know, like you said just someone that doesn't you know kind of know you and it's not even about judgment because you know your friends aren't going to judge you for something right. but it's just about having that there as a as a way and sort of uh yeah i don't know just like a, a resource and somewhere to go that you really think that it's um I don't know. You just like you, you get everything out and then you get this really objective like, look, I don't know you. I obviously have a, you know, clinical duty right. to, to make sure that I'm kind of like helping you out and and uh, giving you the best advice possible. And it's coming from that area, you know, in that place where it's just like they're looking out for the best for you. But really from this like, like, I'm not your friend I'm looking out for the best for you and have this like biased version of what the solution is, is should be. It's like I'm like just you know, a random person. And it's just like, I see this objectively. It's like, no, objectively, like in that case, like you were wrong. You did this thing. Right. Not, it's not like, oh, but you're my friend. So I'm not going to like, I'm going to like ease up a little bit and say like, no, it's okay, dude, or whatever. Or also, you know, for me, it was really helpful just having someone validate my feelings. Hmm. I definitely encourage it because, you know, he was my best friend, but he, he can't be my therapist too. Yeah, that's, that's that's a lot to put on for either way. Either way, you know, it's not just to put on like you know one person or the other. Right. But yeah, for either way, it's like that's not their job per se. That is something that they're willing to do because they love you, you know. But it's not always something that like is within their ability to sort of do that and also to separate their personal feelings and emotions with you with like whatever the issue is at hand. And it's just like they're obviously you know super down and willing to deal with a lot of different things and go through everything all of all of the issues on the table but at the same time there's going to be a limit to the ability to have that separation Mm -hmm. and you don't expect them to have that and that's why yeah you get another mind another person that isn't connected in that way to sort of that specializes in it to be like yeah let me guide you through this or like just let me help you guide yourself through it Mm -hmm. i was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and I used to have these post-traumatic stress episodes. I never knew what that was. People would not normally know that about me, knowing who I am. I have to fight it pretty much every day. That's why it's kind of important for me to be able to have artists sort of know their way through these very pressure-filled, you know, life mm-hmm. and how to balance it out. And being saying, okay, there are resources out there that are allowed for you to go and doesn't make you feel crazy because like anytime you're like oh i'm gonna see a therapist it's like oh no this person's got problems yeah pretty much everybody does <laughs> well i really appreciate you sharing that of aspect course, of yeah. it because every time i see you you're very happy and joyful and you put out like such a great vibe not only you know when you when you're performing but just as you perform you can see that you're really passionate about what you do i'm still trying to get there you know and uh I actually, yeah, it's not the first time I thought about it too, but like you mentioning the thing about counselor, therapist, whatever it might be, you know, that is something that I feel like I should do for my own self pretty soon. Good to have someone to talk to. So let's take a quick break and listen to one of your songs called Break Woman.
lot. Cool. Thank you so much for sharing all no that doubt. stuff yeah. about yourself. You know, what's next for you and how can people find you? On the various social networks and whatnot, DJ Flag on Instagram and all that. And DJ Flag on Facebook. You can look up DJ Flag on SoundCloud, which has all my, you know, different mixes, tracks, things like that. And I'll actually be undertaking some pretty big projects this year. So without going into too much detail about that, you know, just kind of be on the lookout for that. Should be pretty cool. Trying to figure out, like we were talking about, I need to get a full plan for how I'm going to structure everything so I get it all done. But yeah, definitely a lot of big things on the table. And um, wish me luck for actually being able to complete them. Yeah. And hold everything else together simultaneously. Well, we're rooting for you. Definitely always. We're you, big you fans always of are. you. I appreciate you guys. And last but not least, we always end out our interviews with asking you, what is hip-hop to you? It's a culture and it encompasses a lot of different things obviously all of the elements and within that culture it's based in like the traditions of african-american and latino experiences in the united states it's sort of a continuation of some of those cultures some of those cultures and how they assimilated into the u.s and even some of the traditions that they brought from generations and generations ago and how those were transformed into an expression in the day in the days that it was created in the era that it was created and then that also having changed within the era that it is that you know within the current era or within previous eras so you know it's just like it it is it's, its own culture, but I think it's important to understand that it's like that culture that comes from actually a very long lineage and a long tradition. And the tradition doesn't all look exactly like how the things look today. Just like if you look at like what breaking looks like, that came from these different traditions, but breaking has even today looks different than what it looked like when it initially sort of came up. But just remembering that it is all from those roots. And to sort of pay homage, not just to the elements themselves, but to sort of the traditions and people that were the kind of originators of it. And like I said, that stemming from before hip hop was actually created. So that's like sort of what it is to me and sort of what I think is really important for a lot of people and myself to always keep in mind as we go through it. And that might mean for some of us that that's a part of our culture and from going way back for others of us that might mean that like we are you know graciously accepted into that but the we're also guests in a certain sense and we're always welcome in but just to always have those other things in mind and to not kind of divorce them from the history from which it came from you know and that history the last portion of it in hip-hop has so much to do with those traditions and those traditions have so much to do with creativity. And I think that that creative, the creative part is so important and so beautiful in the evolution of all of it, that it's also super important to just kind of remember that all of the evolution of it and the creative creativity that is being expressed and sort of changing the form even or changing what it looks like that it's all important to have those changes and that we shouldn't be afraid of those. And that in each generation, we should kind of embrace that 
and embracing those new revelations and uh, evolutions of the original form is also a part of the culture and yeah so it's a lot there but it's like that, those are the things that over time seeing this thing i can't just say that it's like oh it's these four elements it's like there's so much rich history that created the situation some some of it bad that created the situation that caused those things to kind of like burst out from but they came from a place they didn't just show up from nowhere and that's why remembering that is for first and foremost important so that while enjoying all of these elements of it we don't separate them as their own thing that exists upon themselves but they exist like i said in that larger history thank you so much to our guest dj flag for taking the time and being so open while sharing your perspective with us some of the gems we took away from this interview were in order to create new opportunities it is necessary to continuously practice your skills if you feel the music you should be grooving whether you are in the spotlight or not what differentiates breaking events from other sporting events is the vibe and the connection shared between everyone there that's what makes them special it is important to remember that hip-hop comes from a long history of black and latino cultures it is therefore vital to honor these traditions and their originators by learning and acknowledging them. Our theme music was beatboxed by Dennis Domenis and produced by CD. Big shout outs to the homies in Switzerland. A big shout out to Soul Culture. Follow them at soul.culture on Instagram and get your clothing for the soul. We would love to get your feedback, questions, or any suggestions you might have. You can reach out to us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Solidarity LLC or via email solidarityllc at gmail.com. If you like today's show, please tell a friend about our podcast. Or as Five Dog would say, tell your mother, tell your father, send a telegram. In our next episode, we chat with B-Boy, music producer, entertainer, artist, and filmmaker Josh Ortiz, or better known as Incredible Josh. Thank you for listening to our podcast. No, seriously, though. Thank you. I'm Candy. I'm DJ Razorcut. And, and this, this is Souls of Hip Hop. Hip-hop.